want to look there, great. We're going to eventually get to there. I'm going to read it here in just a little bit. But uh, the title I've given the message this morning is uh, A Place or a Relationship. And um, so I want to, um, yeah, uh, 41 years ago, has it been that long? Um, my wife and I were engaged, and um, I don't feel that old, but it's been that way. It's been that way, and uh, we were we were in the process at that time after being engaged uh, of planning our soon-to-come marriage. Now, whether I verbalized this or not, I I actually had some ideas in my brain of what. Uh, what it is that I wanted to see in my life when we got to this place of being, quote, married. Uh, obviously, I didn't want to have a, quote, bad marriage. I was wanting to have a good marriage. Right, right. And so uh, I had this sort of image in my mind. It wasn't necessarily a white picket fence, but, I mean, there were certain things that were in my brain, and uh, I thought, you know, somehow we're going to be able to get to that place. That's, I'm, I'm ready to put it all on the line so that we can get to this place of good marriage. Amen, Denise? Yes, she's saying amen as well. All right. I have an amen in the room. All right. So, um, so believing in this idea of this place that we could get to and arrive at, uh, we had not only made that decision together, but we, we thought, you know, we really should do the best that we can to prepare ourselves because we believe that this is actually a destination that we can get to. And so let's do the very best that we can to prepare ourselves. So uh, we heard of this thing called premarital counseling, and, you know, our parents never had that kind of thing. So we were going to, like, really prepare ourselves quite well. And uh, we decided that we would approach one of our college professors and his wife, uh, Jim and Sonia Markham. We call them in, in our college that we, our, our Bible college that we went to, we call them brother. We didn't call him professor, brother Jim. So we approached brother Jim and his wife, Sonia, about uh, doing our premarital counseling because we really saw them as an, you know, a couple that, like, it, they looked like they had arrived at that place. Right, honey? Yeah. And so uh, I, I don't recall exactly how many sessions that we went to. Do you? I don't either. Okay. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> that I wasn't the only one I forgot. Anyway, somewhere between four, six, I don't know, somewhere in there, the sessions that we had. And uh, they had us over in their home. Now, it, the, the school that we went to is in Joplin, Missouri. They lived in this little town north of it called Carthage. Uh, which, uh, anyway, yeah, don't bunny trail on that, Ben, but it's the birthplace of uh, Precious Moments, I think it is. Is that right? Yeah. Anyway, sorry, it went there. Um, so we were there in, in their little house and sitting on, I think on their love seat is where they had us sit, and then they would sit across from us, and we would sit down, and we were having these frank discussions about what they had concluded were some of the most important things that we ought to address, things like, uh, you know, communication, money, conflict resolution. I'm sure a lot of other things that we talked about that were very important. I don't remember them. Now, um, interestingly, I can say that 40 years later, um, I had no idea about the challenge that we had in front of us called a relationship. 
because not only would we very quickly and very soon be facing things like chronic illness, oops, life-altering illness that almost ended my life, and then we're faced with the possibility of, of, of being barren. That really is true. It, it really was. It really did happen. Um, I mean, there's just all kinds of other disappointments. So I, I, I'm sitting back and I'm thinking over the 40 years, what did we apply out of what Jim and Sonia taught us? Well, actually, there's one moment that stands out in my mind that I can remember. It was just a moment. And I wonder if it's the same one for you, babe. But they, were, were, they had us sitting. Now, see, I'm going to test my, you, see, you. Uh, we're sitting on this love seat together, and do you remember when they said, now, turn and face one another, hold each other's hand, look each other in the eye, and they made some kind of statement like this. The person you're looking at is the one that is going to stand with you for the rest of your life. Was it something like that right then? Are you ready to do that? Now, Again, all kinds of twists and turns later, by the way, almost 40 years, within a few days, we're supposed to say congratulations. All right. All right, all right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I want a, I want a, I want a chocolate bar or something. Anyway, so uh, I have I've come not, I, I want to just say um, some things that I have come to realize with clarity is that I don't know that we've ever found the place called good marriage. Would you call it that, babe? The place? You see, I, I, I'm thinking about, you know, I was, I was pondering this. You know, years of, um, 40 years, and almost always in those 40 years, surrounded and pressed in by things that were unknown and uncertain. And sometimes ones that were huge surprises and, and, you know, take your breath away kinds of things. But then there were, you know, sleepless nights and years, literally years of diapers, um, toddlers, you know, all kinds of pressures. And then I remember during part of that time, especially when we had toddlers at home and young ones at home, the, this pressure in ministry and that was coming from an, a mindset that we're being told, you know, leadership is so important. Therefore, you need to make sure that you keep a clean line between your personal life and your professional life. They've got to be separate. And I would say that was one of the hardest challenges for me. It's like, like, which lane am I supposed to live in? Until finally I realized that's a bunch of baloney. Um, in fact, I would say over the last several years, it's become our, our stated pursuit to live quite the opposite. Because here's what we've discovered. I'm going to speak for my wife now. What we've discovered after 40 years, the greatest blessing isn't just, you know, the things that we've done, kids, the grandkids, the, but, but it's this, this reality of doing life together. Because marriage isn't about a place you get to. It's about a relationship you're living in. And, and, you know, 
we, we went to the premarital counseling thing because we believed in the idea. And we were ready to give it all for that. I want to say after 40 years, um, it's one thing to have an idea. It's quite another to choose the reality of this living a life and choosing life together. I don't have magic bullets to offer anybody. You know, what's success look like? When do you get to that place you arrive? Well, it's not a place you arrive at. It's not a location. It's something that's lived in every day in a relationship of mutual trust. Right? Sometimes having to remind ourselves in the morning and then later in the day. It's choosing to show up. Even when it's difficult, and dare I even say this out loud, boring. The choice is saying yes to relationship. Because it's not about a place, it's, it's a relationship. Jesus, in John 17, he, he's praying a prayer. It's recorded as a prayer. Now, if you've sat in church for any number of years, you've heard this chapter being referred to as, quote, the high priestly prayer of Jesus. I don't remember when I first heard that, but I thought, wow, that's really cool, and it kind of stuck. And I've heard it referred to by other individuals, the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Yeah, cool, stuck. But, you know, it, how did that happen? Well, actually, it was, uh, it was Clement of Alexander, the 5th century uh, church father, who first described it that way because he said it's not just a prayer. It's really Jesus pleading on behalf of others. Some have referred to it as the other Lord's Prayer, the one that we don't memorize, uh, because the truth is it's kind of long and rambly. Have you ever tried to read it? It's a little hard to follow. Um, and it's not like the, the Our Father prayer that we're so familiar with because that one's you know, concise and it's sort of pithy and covers things with efficiency. You know, I can remember that one. John 17 is this sort of thing that comes out of Jesus, this prayer about relationship, but watch this in the context of relationship. John 17. Now, uh, before we even can talk about that, really to understand John 17, <clears throat> you have to begin in John 16, but for real, actually, we talked about this last week. You need to kind of begin 13 because it's 13 where Jesus said, hey, I am, by the way, going to be gone and you're not going to be able to follow me. And the questions start arising. We talked about some of that last week out of John 14. And Jesus said, I'm going to send the helper, the counselor. And he talks about it 14, 15, 16. Really a lot of discussion about the person work of the Holy Spirit. He says, abide in me. And, and he spent this time. And this is all in the context of the upper room. And so you get to the very end of John 16, and you get to verse 29. After they've made their pleas, Jesus, show us the way. And he says, you know, I'm the way, and I'm the truth, I'm the life. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Spirit's going to convict you. He's going to be your helper. He's going to come alongside you, abide in him. And they get to the very end of John 16, verse 29, and, 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 and they say, we believe. We believe that you have come from God. Jesus, we get it. Now, 
That sounds like a really good premarital course. Jesus is sharing with them, and they said, ah, we get it. We've, they, 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 they answered a question he wasn't even asking. He said, Jesus, you know, we, we've come to believe that you are from God. And Jesus' response, interestingly, verse 30, says, do you, do you believe? And then he goes on to share with them what their future is going to look like. Hey, guys, you've just made a proclamation. We arrived. We've got the place. We nailed it. And Jesus said, do you think that you've nailed it? Because it was never about arriving at a place. In fact, he goes on and says, hey, by the way, um, you're going to scatter and you will all leave me alone. Verse 30. Uh, by the way, I won't be alone. I already know that. Uh, just pause for a second. This is really powerful because you go to chapter 14, 15, 16. Jesus is giving this dissertation, and they, they finally said, Ah, we believe it. And then Jesus' response is, uh, Do you? Because guess what? It's, about not, it's, it's not going to really end well for you. You're going to leave me. We believe you've come from God. See, we have no idea what it looks like, Jesus, but as long as we as only do the things that are right, it'll all work, right? But life never works because life isn't about doing. Life is who we are and it's how we live, how we live in the midst of where we are. That's a good word. Jesus says in verse 30, you're going to leave me. And then 33, 30, uh, but 31 and 32, he says, you're going to leave me and I'm gonna, I won't be alone. And then 33, it's, it's like, Jesus, what are you saying? Um, take courage. Have peace. Because I've prayed for you and I've overcome the world. What? You're going to fail, but it's okay. Take courage. Because Jesus knows something about their future. And I dare say that he knows about our future. Listen to this. That is not based on merit, but on relationship. A relationship of love, the love of the Father revealed in Christ. And that, by the way, is what John 17 is about. Hey, guys. Love it. I love it. You believe the idea I'm from the Father? Do you really? Because you're about to leave me. But I'm really confident because here's what I'm confident about. Not your merit. I'm confident about the Father. Beloved, when we become more confident about the Father, there's something dramatic that occurs. Here's where John 17 begins. Here's where you get context. Jesus, again, he's not on a rock in a garden. He's in the upper room with his friends in John 17. And again, let me paint a little bit more of that picture. Jesus in his humanity. But remember, this is God in the flesh. This is Genesis 1 Jesus, according to the book of Colossians chapter 2, 17. And Paul says again, and I believe in... Uh, 
uh, in the book of Romans. It's not, I'm not pulling the right chapter, but everything created by him, for him, through him. Okay? That Jesus, remember the spirit of the Lord's hovering over the waters, and the Lord said, let there be light. Colossians 2, if everything is created by him, for him, through him, that was Jesus who spoke those words. That Jesus is with his friends, and he's praying. That powerful God is praying for his friends. He knows the condition of the world that they're in. He actually knows the weakness of those individuals. And catch this. He's not praying to fix something. Settle that in our heart, in our brain. He's not praying for a transformation of that out there. Here's the big reveal of John 17. He's praying to his father in the reality of a relationship of mutual trust for his friends to land in the same place. He is revealing prayer is this place of relationship. It's not a secret weapon to, quote, change stuff, but the normal avenue of relationship with the father that he trusts in Prayer that's anchored in heaven and revealing the light of hope that's greater than the despair of darkness. Prayer whose purpose is not to fix what's broken, but to reveal what's true about God himself. I'm asking. I'm asking. We're just going to see this here in a minute, what he's asking for. I'm asking that you keep them by your name. Ready for this? He is staking his life and the lives of those that he loves on the revelation of the Father's goodness. End of sentence. And that is actually good news. John 17. Father, the time has come. Jesus lifts his eyes to heaven. And he's in, he's just heard his friends say, hey, we got it. And he said, oh, by the way, you don't. Take courage. I've overcome the world. Uh, these things I've spoken to you so that you would have peace. Verse 1, 17, Jesus spoke these things, lifting his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Now, oh, wait a second here. John 7, when there's this powerful thing that's occurring in Jerusalem, there's water being poured out on an altar. Jesus gets up in the middle of that celebration and says, anyone who believes in me, out of him will flow rivers of living water. And by this, John says, he meant the spirit whom he was later to give, but he hadn't yet given because he hadn't yet been glorified. This is the glorification he's talking about. Glorify your son. Even as you've given him authority over all flesh, that all whom you have given to him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life. Ready? That they may know you. That word for know is intimate understanding and knowledge. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work uh, which you've given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Verse 6, I've manifested your name. You could 
take note of that word name. Uh, to the men whom you have given me, or th- that word men is to those that are around him, um, you've given me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the world which you gave me, I have given to them. Excuse me, the words that you have given me, I have given to them. And they receive them, and they understand that uh, I've come from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Now I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all things are mine, yours and uh, are yours and yours are mine. This is where it gets really interesting. Uh, and I have been glorified in them. I no longer am in the world, but they themselves are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. In these final moments, when Jesus is sharing his heart with his friends, he says, glorify your son. Now, again, I tie that to John 7. That word glorify means not some mystical zapping moment, but a revelation of the good opinion of the Father. That's actually what the word glory means. So, glorify. Father, the hours come that the old, faded, harsh ideas of you as a distant, delayed, uh, angry God be exposed as lies. Glorify your Son with what we shared in the beginning. And again, I, I want to spend a, just a few more moments looking at these at these verses. But I want you to I want you to see. I, I made a note of that one ver- of the word. Uh, the word that he used for name here is about the nature and the reputation of the person. But it's actually its root word is in the word knowledge. Okay, so it's a root, it's connected to it. So Jesus' final prayer for his friends is not about a strategy about how well they can live or how well they can outwit hell. He's, or, or he's not asking them for power de- demonstrations to capture the imagination of the world. What he's praying for with his friends is that they would actually know the nature of God. Keep them by the reputation of your nature. He's staking his life and the lives of those that he loves on the goodness of the Father. Psalm 16.8. Think about that. I've set the Lord before me, and because he's at my right hand, I'll not be shaken. So as Jesus is praying this prayer, in the context of relationship, he's praying for relationship for his friends. Why is that? A couple of things I want to point to. I'll try to make that quick. One is this. Jesus is praying in relationship for relationship because he knows humanity and he knows what's common to man. What is that? Well, the Hebrew writer says he's been tempted in every way like us. He's deeply aware of what happened in Genesis 3 and at the root of every sin. At the root of every sin is the attempt to meet my needs outside of God, a belief that says, I think my need can be met, and I'm not sure God will meet it. Oh, wait, I go back to Genesis 3, and what, is, what was the accusation of, of the serpent? Um, God's holding out, 
and uh, you've got to take care of you, and you're not enough. And, oh, wait, when, when Satan is tempting Jesus, he doesn't question his calling. He just says, hey, why don't you fulfill it in your own strength? So Jesus knows our humanity, and what he's praying for, again, isn't some super zapping demonstration of God before us, but rather that we would come to this place of surrender. You know, he's got a pretty good idea of how weak we can be. Therefore, when he's facing the toughest moment of his humanity, he's not praying a prayer to fix it. He's praying a prayer to be reminded of the glory of the Father. Now think of the magnitude of that. And then he's praying, Lord, that's what I want for them. He knows that the greatest help for his friends is not, quote, a power demonstration, but a relationship of trust. Can I trust that my father is good? They're yours. Protect them now by the revelation of your nature and your reputation. Interesting, isn't it, that Jesus says this is eternal life. Now, last week we looked at the fact that that's not someplace in the distance. It's actually an age to come. It's actually where we live now. But, but this is eternal life that they would know you. So if it's a place I live in now, it's actually a place that I could live in a place knowing that there's a God that loves me and knows me. He's not praying out of demand, but independence and trust. Revealing, by the way, something about heaven. Revealing something about the nature of the kingdom of God. The former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, described the strangeness and the wonder of the Jesus who prays. Jesus is a human being, yes, in whom God's action is at work without interruption or impediment. But wait a minute. The Jesus we meet in the Gospels is someone who prays, who speaks of putting his will and his decisions at the service of his Father. He's someone who is in a relationship of dependence on the one to whom he prays, the one he refers to as Father. In him there is divine purpose and power and action, but there is also humility, responsiveness, and receptivity. Jesus is praying, beloved, watch this, in humility and dependence. On his father. He's staking his future and the future of those that he loves on the reputation of his father. And his target, he says, make them one. You know, sometimes I've heard this referred to and prayed about and talked about as if it's a place we get to. Right? How divided we are as a nation. True. How divided we are as a world. How divided the church is. Jesus, when is this going to happen? Well, maybe it's not like a win, sort of like a place you get to. Maybe it's something that we live in. Oh, wait, that's how God lives. The oneness that the Godhead shares in interdependence and humility is maintained not by uniformity, 
in interdependence, humility, and love. Australian theologian Andrew Pryor says this, unity, here's a challenge for the brain, ready? Is not about agreement. Too often agreement is about the patron or the boss calling the shots. See, sometimes we even want to portray God like that, right? He's the big cheese. We're the little ones. We do what he says. How does that work in the how does that work in the Godhead? Unity is where agreement is paramount. Where, excuse me. Unity where agreement is paramount will forever be at risk of scapegoating. Just get rid of the difficult ones, the odd ones, then we'll have agreement, then we can get something done. A lot of church wounding has happened with those words. A lot of abuse. In the name of Jesus, unfortunately. Unity is about loving each other as Christ loved us. John 13, 34 and 35. So here's the words. Ready for this? The love of Christ does not kill the ones who we disagree with. It dies for the ones with whom we disagree. Unity is about loving each other as Christ loved us. And that's where I get to live this in my relationship with my wife. Oops, here I am again. Could it be, beloved, that we are most human when we live surrendered to the good opinion of the Father about ourselves and others to know this is eternal life to choose to live engaged and settled in his heart toward me and to lay down my life for those with whom I disagree. Choosing a life of prayer out of, out of John 17 is not choosing some secret weapon, beloved. It's choosing the normal place that Jesus lived in and invites us to a place of mutual trust anchored in the hope of heaven. Prayer whose purpose is not to fix what's broken, but to reveal the truth about God and to invite us to live as he did towards us, inviting us to a cross. He staked his life and the lives of those that he loved on the revelation and the, the, the revelation of the reputation of the Father's goodness and his heart. And beloved, that is indeed Good news. The time has come. Glorify your son. The time has come. Lord, glorify your son in us. Amen. I want to invite you, as we respond this morning, I want to invite you to stand with me. And let's pray this closing prayer together. Mighty God, in whom we know the power of redemption, you stand among us in the shadows of our time as we move through every sorrow and trial of this life. Uphold us with the knowledge of the Father's love for you and us. Guard us with your true name as we share in his resurrection, redeemed and restored to the fullness of life and forever freed to be your people. Amen. Amen. Those of